Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I share my keynote with the Lend Lease Level Up program out of Singapore titled Systems Thinking Working Effectively in a Collaborative Environment. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to be with all of you. It's evening for me, uh, morning for you. Uh, And uh, so I I think we'll have a a really fun uh, opportunity here tonight or in the morning uh, to have a good conversation. I'll, I'll be asking some questions as we go, but I hope that you will ask me questions as well. I, uh, I'm really passionate about this topic. There's lots of related topics, and we'll explore a little bit of the tangential elements as well tonight, or uh, sorry, I need to stop saying tonight, um, uh, today. And ultimately, uh, I want this to be as interactive as you want it to be. So if you have questions, if you have comments throughout, feel free to put them in the chat. Uh, We will be monitoring the chat, and if you have comments or questions, uh, we will make sure that we address those as we go. Uh, I'll also leave some time at the end to just have a general open dialogue and explore this a little bit more specifically. The topic for today is an important one, uh, and while we're going to talk about some of the concepts around it, I also don't want this to be an overly academic uh, presentation. Uh, the The idea is that this should be something um, where you feel like you have some tools uh, that you can take away from the presentation today and our interaction that you can go back and apply to your current work setting to try to make a difference and, and to, to make an impact um, in your own work, in your job, with your team, uh, with the people that you uh, collaborate with and work with or even lead. Uh, let me share my screen and I will be, um, I think you'll see my picture in the bottom corner as we go. Um, so hopefully it's not too impersonal as we go throughout. But uh, again, please don't hesitate to ask any questions. Uh, I'm happy to respond uh, to any comments or questions that you might have. Okay, here we are. And just by way of personal background, you can see you know, just a little bit about myself. I am what I like to consider a scholar practitioner. Uh, and so I'm a professor. I've been a professor now for over 12 years at the local university here in Utah. I'm south of Salt Lake City. If you happen to remember the 2002 Olympics were in Salt Lake City. Um, and I, I was here at the time and, and had a great time with the Olympics and welcoming the world to come to the great state of Utah. I've been at Utah Valley University for 12 years. 
where I'm the chair and professor of organizational leadership and lead the, the programming around human resource management, um, leadership and organizational behavior, ethical decision-making, corporate social responsibility, those sorts of um, programs, classes, and uh, topics. I'm also the academic director for the Center for Social Impact at the university. I'm very passionate about looking at society as a whole system. And if we're gonna try to uh, address the most complex and challenging problems that face the world today, we can only do it as we approach uh, those problems and challenges from a holistic standpoint. And systems thinking is a really great way to do that. And I'll explain more about what I mean by that here in a little bit. And then uh, for the past 15 years, I have run my consultancy, Human Capital Innovations, and with that, we have a range of offerings of assessment solutions and trainings, um, uh, consulting and uh, other work that we do to support leaders and try to help organizations maximize their own potential. With that, I welcome anyone to tune into my podcast, the Human Capital Innovations podcast. We're close to 600 episodes in the podcast, usually around uh, 20 to 30 minute episodes on a whole range of topics. So if, if anything we talk about today is interesting to you and it piques your interest, um, there, I have you know thousands of hours of content for free on my podcast and you're more than welcome to check it out. I would love to, to hear from you and stay connected with you that way. All right, so what are we going to cover tonight? I've, in, in my mind, I've broken this into three main parts. First, I wanna talk about interdisciplinarity, what that is and how that connects to the skills needed for the future of work. So we'll be talking about the competencies, the capabilities needed in the future of work. And one of those key um, components is getting out of the silos, getting out of our own uh, departments, our own functional areas, and being able to work more holistically together in an interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary way so that we can help our organizations to innovate, to be creative, and ultimately uh, provide, maintain a competitive advantage and add value to the marketplace. Then we will move into more specifically talking about systems thinking. Now systems thinking, I believe, is one of those core skills necessary for the future of work. Um, and so certainly there's a tie in there, but then we're gonna zoom in on systems thinking specifically. We're gonna be talking about the, the business and personal case for systems thinking and applying it into the workforce, and also some of the components and elements of uh, systems thinking and the characteristics we should be considering as we try to adopt uh, a systems thinking mindset and ultimately uh, drive a, a systems thinking approach uh, in our teams. And then finally, part three, this is the application piece. I hope each of you will come away from the presentation today with some tips and tricks and tools that you can find helpful uh, when you go back to your job uh, that to start thinking about your 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 unit, your team, uh, your organization in a new, more holistic, systems-oriented way. Uh, so developing a systems thinking action plan specifically, and I have some, some uh, worksheets and tools that are embedded into this presentation, uh, all of which will be shared with you. And so once you leave this presentation today, you'll have a, a great basis to start that process of working through uh, those components um, as you continue forward. 
All right, so let's start and really just launch into interdisciplinarity and skills for the future of work. This is something I'm super passionate about. I could talk about the future of work and skills um, needed all day long. Uh, and interdisciplinarity is something that I am equally passionate about. I, I see myself as one with an interdisciplinary background, academically, professionally. Um, I was one, I, I know university systems around the world all vary, um, but I'm one in the US system, we can change majors. So if, if I decide I want to study business, um, I can then switch and go from business to something else, to something else, to something else. I switched my major four times <laughs> when I was an undergraduate student. I started out in math. I then moved to uh, business management. I then moved to accounting. And then I switched one last time to sociology. Uh, and that's what I ended up graduating in with minors in business and in Korean, uh, having lived in, in South Korea and Seoul and the Pusan area for about three years. And it was a wonderful, eclectic mix of all these different things that I learned in my undergrad years. And then I went and got a master's in public administration and then my PhD in sociology, where I focused on work in organizations and comparative international studies. Um, so my background is very interdisciplinary. I, I say all that uh, just to illustrate um, that we all tend to have nonlinear paths in life. Um, there are many things, you know, that we, we try to set a goal, we try to move forward, but often it's one step forward, two steps back, or two steps forward, one step back. And sometimes we're, zig we're zigzagging around. And that's something that I've personally found in my life. Um, but as I lean into that messiness, the uncertainty, as I lean into uh, the learnings that can occur from all these different interactions I have with different people in different cultures across the world, in different disciplines, in different um, in different uh, departments and areas of organizations, uh, I learn, I grow. And that's, that's what I hope all of us can do. And I think that's what's necessary for us to be successful in the future of work. So what is interdisciplinarity? Uh, there are so many distinct benefits of interdisciplinary learning uh, and how we can then apply that into the workforce. We, through interdisciplinary thinking, and connecting across disciplines, across functional areas, we are better able to recognize bias. We're better able to think more critically about the challenges and problems that we face. We're better able to tolerate and navigate ambiguity, uncertainty, complexity, and all of those sorts of challenges that we face. And ultimately, we, we have, because we have a more holistic view, we can understand all the key stakeholders involved, which allows us to better acknowledge and appreciate ethical concerns related to any of the decisions that we might be making. Uh, in, in the workplace, we're constantly making decisions that impact other people. And especially when we have what you know, we often call ethical dilemmas, these ethical dilemmas are dilemmas because they're complicated. Uh, if it's a simple problem, there's usually a simple solution. But in organizations, most of the time, we don't have simple problems. We have complex problems that require complex understanding of interactions and different stakeholders. And so an interdisciplinary approach helps us, as we have that kind of a mindset, it helps us um, to, to embrace all of that. And we're in a better situation at that point to, to deal with those challenges. So why is interdisciplinarity important? Because real world problems are complex. 
there's almost never a single discipline that can adequately describe and respond to and resolve those core challenges and problems that we face, whether we're talking about societal issues or if we're talking about organizational challenges and problems. Um, And so as we go throughout the presentation, as I talk about systems thinking, I hope you again and again can can reflect back on how this connects to this idea of interdisciplinarity, cross-disciplinary work, collaboration, and ultimately the need that we have um, in the future of work to work better, more effectively together. Now, all of this that I'm discussing today is discussed um, some more than some aspects more than others, but certainly the systems thinking components as well as um, the future of work and, and these core skills and competencies that are needed in the future of work. All of this is discussed in my book that came out uh, about a year ago, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership. I, I suggest that you check it out um, if, if you're connected on Amazon. Um, you can get a free um, uh, Amazon Unlimited. You can get a free copy of the ebook. Uh, I believe there will be a, a giveaway um, coming up uh, soon, and this book will be one of the items in the giveaway. And so look for that. Um, I'm sharing this with you, though, because I think the title of my book gets to what is at the foundation of, of my remarks uh, for today Alchemy. Why the word alchemy? Why truly remarkable leadership? The word alchemy was the medieval forerunner of chemistry, a mixture of the art, speculative philosophy, uh, and ultimately it it was the forerunner to the physical sciences. And so before we knew uh, how to explain the physical world, um, people tried to discover the alchemy of creating something remarkable out of something else. You take some valuable object and through some sort of alchemy process, you would try to change that, that object into something else, even more valuable. Um, I believe that's a really apt way of thinking about leadership within organizations. We are all leaders within organizations because we all have the opportunity to influence those around us. It doesn't matter if I have no supervisory responsibility, um, but certainly once I have supervisory responsibility, responsibility, managerial responsibility, and then move up through the ranks um, to middle management to even executive levels of leadership, everyone in an organization uh, needs to be able to influence, they need to be able to develop trust, they need to develop relationships with other people around them and to be able to work collaboratively with those people. And all of that takes leadership skills. And all of us can learn how to develop into what makes us a truly great leader. And so that's where alchemy comes in. Each of you on this call today, you're here because you want to learn, because you want to grow, because you want to develop yourself. You're already a remarkable person. You already have a lot of capabilities, but as you go through the journey of better understanding yourself and better understanding others, you can start to discover your own personal alchemy of leadership that can help you grow into your full potential. And I think that's what we all need to be focusing on as we go throughout life. Um, Let me see, trying to move to the next screen. Here we go. Um, One model that I just briefly want to go into is this idea of the intersection between leadership and service. I'm a big believer in servant leadership. 
I, be I believe there's lots of leadership theories that can be helpful to us in the future of work, but servant leadership and the leader who also serves, that that is a foundational um, concept that I think is, is a necessary given in any successful organization today. In a service sector economy, or service-based economy, and a knowledge economy, we need people who uh, understand each other, who can leverage each other, and build upon the, the capacities and capabilities of each other. And so one of the things you can learn about in my book, some of the things we'll be talking about today, is about this self-knowledge, this self-understanding. And the more we know about ourselves, the, know, the more we can know and understand those we lead and serve. We can have more empathy, we can have more compassion, and ultimately, the more we understand about others, the more we understand about ourselves, and it's just this, hopefully, this, this perpetual onward, upward spiral. Um, towards continual understanding and development. But we also need tangible skills. And so you, part of the reason you're here is because this is part of this upskilling series that you're involved in to learn new skills. Um, so developing skills and abilities is really vital. It, you can't just have good relationships with people. You actually have to have tangible skills to be able to be effective, but just learning about them doesn't actually do a whole lot for you either. It all comes down to application. So at the bottom of the screen, um, the bottom box, you see applying skills and abilities to lead and serve others. Uh, the, at the tail end of, our, of the presentation today, before you leave um, this, this uh, seminar, uh, I'm gonna leave you with some tools that you can use to apply what we've talked about and to develop your own action plan towards systems thinking mindset and to look at components you know, within your team, within your organization, that um, a systems thinking more interdisciplinary collaborative approach will help you to be more effective. Without that application, you can sit through a training like this and it can be interesting and you might come away with some aha moments and you might find it compelling, um, but ultimately, it'll fade and you'll forget. Um, it's only through application that it starts to sink into our head and that we can really make those neural network connections, uh, that it can become a part of who we are and a part of our approach to leadership, a part of our approach to interacting with those around us. All right, so now let's talk a little bit more about um, the shifts in the nature of work and what's moving us towards this, this shifting future of work. There's lots of things impacting this, but uh, here I just just briefly want to mention some of the technological innovations that we see that even in the past year we've been able to uh, recognize as directly influencing the way we do our jobs and how that is shifting. Pre-pandemic, we still had people working remotely. We still had utilization of, of platforms like Zoom or Teams to be able to connect virtually like we are right now. It's, it's remarkable that I can be with you from Utah while you're in various parts of Asia and the other side of the world, and we can have this kind of an interaction. Uh, it's, it's truly remarkable. And that technology existed pre-pandemic, but the pandemic accelerated us, it kind of, uh, launched us and catapulted us more quickly into this this shifting future that we already saw coming. The trend was all already leading us that way, um, but now over this past year, this past 15 months, everyone has had to adopt or die. They've had to adopt and adapt and ultimately 
become more and more comfortable with these technologies. So virtual meeting technology is just one uh, one element. We talk extensively. I'm sure you've had many uh, conversations and trainings about AI and machine learning and how these are disrupting the workforce and disrupting your industry and disrupting the way you do your jobs. Uh, the bottom line is automation is happening. It has been happening for decades and it's the speed of automation is only increasing. And so in the next five to 10 years, there will be people that have jobs that are displaced uh, or there will be aspects of jobs that we do today that we won't do in five to 10 years because computers or other machinery and, and robotics will be able to do a lot of those routinized uh, repetitive types of actions uh, and tasks. But where humans come in and where we will always be necessary and vital and important in the future of work is through the collaborative environment that we create within our workplaces to be able to interact and innovate. Um, I don't see anytime soon machine learning or artificial intelligence being able to replicate the the innovation dynamics that we see in really great organizations uh, to solve complex problems. That's a, a uniquely human capacity and capability, um, and but some of us are better at that than others, and so we need we need to grow and learn, uh, lean into that, and, and develop those capacities. Here you can see a diagram of some of the skills needed in the future of work. Uh, I've already referred to um, the rise of smart machines and systems um, here at the bottom in the pink. So certainly robotics and uh, other types of, of machine learning and AI is, is shifting uh, the nature of work. But we have all these other drivers of change that are changing the way organizations function and really what we even mean by work, what we mean by organizations and leadership. We're in an increasingly computational world with super structured organizations driven by technological connectivity. Uh, we're globally interconnected more than we ever have been before as illustrated just by this meeting today the ability that we have to get together in this way and to interact and even do follow-ups um, seamlessly in previous generations uh, it would require strenuous time intensive travel uh, that uh, that took a toll on everybody and was expensive and now we can connect like this so easily it's it's truly remarkable we have new media ecology that's shifting the way that we're working together. We have new types of technologies. Um, it seems like almost weekly that some new platform comes out, some new way of interacting uh, emerges, and we have to learn how to adopt and adapt to the, the changing nature of how we interact because of that. And then over here in the green, you can see extreme longevity. That's just a demographic change that we see across the world that ultimately is going to change the way we interact with each other in the workplace. So what, what do these drivers of change mean for us in the future of work? We need to, well, the, the topic for today, transdisciplinarity, interdisciplinarity, cross-disciplinarity. We have to be able to do that because we're going to be in increasingly interconnected, complex systems of organiz superstructured organizations that require technical skills and competencies in order to, to manage the, the enhanced uh, technological um, materials, equipment, the, the, the software that we have at our disposal to do our work more effectively, more efficiently. Part of that then leads into this idea of cognitive load management. Uh, 
I, you know, I, I need to be able to juggle a lot of balls. I need to be able to keep a lot of things afloat um, and utilize software to help me do that. But ultimately, I have to be able to, to do many things and shift my focus from thing to thing quickly as I'm trying to deal with the complexities of life in the workplace. Virtual collaboration, just like we're doing now. I've already talked about new media literacy, cross-cultural competencies. Uh, the more interconnected we are, the more we interact with and work directly with people from completely different backgrounds than we come from. And that requires a new level of competencies to be able to be effective in how we do that. Novel and adaptive thinking, sense-making, design mindset. Um, I could go on and on and on. But I don't want to belabor this um, because that's not the core of what we're going to be focusing on today. But the bottom line is there are so many of these key foundational skill sets, competencies, and capabilities that are needed if we're going to be, um, if we're going to continue to be relevant in the future of work, both as individuals and within our teams and within our organizations. Uh, so it's wonderful that you're here. It's wonderful that you're part of this training program and that you're getting upskilled in all these different areas because it's going to help you be ready for your next uh, opportunity. Uh, your current, it'll help you do your current job better, but it'll help you be ready for your next uh, promotion, your next opportunity um, as you move forward. It's an interesting dynamic because we we live in a world that has become more and more specialized, right? Um, over time, more and more niche, and you you have your specialization, and you you go, you know, you're an inch wide and a mile deep in your expertise. And we need experts like that, um, but we also need individuals. We need uh, not necessarily individuals who are a mile wide and an inch deep, because we do need depth um, of understanding, but. That's a false dichotomy. It doesn't need to be either you're super have super great depth, you know, in one very narrow specific field, or you have, you know, you're a jack of all trades and you only have a very shallow level of understanding across many areas. Uh, we can have a level of depth across a range of areas uh, that will allow us to better understand whole systems. And so that's what I would advocate for. I think in the future of work, there will always be a role for super niche experts with a, a really great level of depth um, in the, the work that they do because leaders are going to need to lean on them for increasingly technical skills and understanding as it relates to the jobs and, and the work that the organization's doing. But anyone who is in any sort of a supervisory management or leadership role or even a customer facing you know, uh, human interactive role, they're going to have to have a broader understanding of of what the organization does, how it connects with the broader community, um, the key stakeholders, all of those elements. So as we, in a, in a few minutes, we'll be getting more into, into systems thinking um, to explore that more in depth. Um, but I, I guess I would just say that, yeah, let's, let's foster expertise, particularly tech, Technical expertise, uh, particularly in STEM fields, is super important. But we need people to be able to see how to connect the dots. Because if, if we only have individuals an inch wide, mile deep in all these different disparate disciplines, uh, and, and they never connect the dots between their own um, very specific fields of study, 
then we're going to be missing the boat on the biggest questions of our day, whether it's big societal problems, political problems, or organizational challenges that we're facing, just strategy, trying to make sure that we are competitive and we continue to add value to the market. Does that kind of help you with your question? Here's another way of looking at some of the types of things that I think we need to develop. Uh, the 10 commitments living humanist values. Um, you know, people have their different backgrounds in terms of religiosity, spirituality, and whatnot. Ultimately, I'm not sure it matters, you know, what your own particular um, preference is in those regards, because these 10 values uh, tend to transcend religious dogma or specific uh, orientation. The ability to develop empathy, to have critical uh, thinking skills, ethical development, and to connect more into the peace and social justice issues of our day, um, humility, environmentalism, global awareness, like all these different elements, I think as, we, as I think of the greatest um, individuals with the, the, the greatest capacity to uh, influence those around them, they demonstrate these types of uh, of characteristics, these competencies. Uh, so between uh, what I present here in this slide and what's in this slide, I think that gives you a whole, you know, a couple handfuls of things to think about um, and reflect on. How does this connect back with your own sense of yourself and how you work with your colleagues, for example? How does it? How do these connect back to uh, how you? Uh, frame the work that you do uh, in how it connects with the community. All right, I want to share a couple of proverbs. I, I mentioned I lived in South Korea for three years, so learning the Korean language, uh, there's probably some um, native Koreans on the call today, um, so welcome. I, I love the language. Uh, I was much better at the language when I lived in Korea, um, uh, but that was almost 20 years ago, so I'm a little bit more rusty now. Uh, but I love to read Korean and practice whenever I get a chance. And and several of the proverbs really resonated with me uh, from a young age and have always stuck with me ever since and, and have largely influenced my worldview. So this one, chulam jie, means bluer than indigo. The idea here is very simple. Uh, you think about, I mean, well, I, I'm preaching to the choir um, because you, you all know your culture better than I know your culture. But um, in, in many Asian cultures, this idea of um, reverence towards the elders, reverence towards the teachers, reverence towards uh, authority and to, to leaders is very important. And this, this proverb specifically speaks to the importance of recognizing that I don't matter. As, as much as my ability, you know, me in, in and of myself, it, that doesn't matter as much as my ability to help develop those around me. And in my mind, the greatest uh, leaders out there are not necessarily, they might be, but they're not necessarily the most intelligent, the most smart and ingenious people themselves, but they have this innate ability to develop relationships, develop um trust with those around them and the people they lead or the people they teach and develop then grow in capacity and capability that surpasses them so they, they become bluer than indigo this the, the most vibrant of blues so if you think about this leader or this teacher who is indigo now they're helping the people around them to become bluer than indigo or 
or surpass their own uh, capacities, right? And I think that's a truly wonderful thing. And that's as a professor, as a consultant, as a coach, these are the types of things, you know, that's what I hope for, for everyone I work with. Meeting with you today, you know, my, my number one goal is I hope that each of you come away with ideas, with tools today that will allow you to, to hit the ground running and to go off and do remarkable things. And you will, you know, go and surpass uh, those people in, in traditional hierarchical uh, roles that might be, you know, quote unquote above you, ultimately, none of that really matters. It's all about how we develop each other. And this ties back into what we were talking about with servant leadership too. Because when I have a servant mindset, I my goal is to develop other people. And I believe ultimately that's what this, this proverb is getting at. Another one that I really love is umul ane geguri or frog in a well. Um, again, Matt, imagine that you're this frog at the bottom of a well. Um, it's wet, it's dark, it's cold, you're trapped. Uh, you, you can only see a narrow pillar of sky above you and, and your world is limited. And we're all like that frog. We're all at the bottom of a well and we all come from our unique background and upbringing with norms and values um, that are espoused in our homes, in our communities. And, and we learn within that context and that's like our own little well. And there's safety there, there's uh, a lot of value there, but over time as we, as we grow and we develop and we experience and we interact with others who aren't like us, then it's like we're climbing out of the well, we're that frog that's starting to emerge. And once we get to the top of that well, for the first time we, we look out uh, outside of the well, we look around and we realize for the first time the vastness of the sky, the vastness of the, the landscape and the mountains and the streams and the, the beauties around us, all the animals. And, and we also notice something else. We look around and we see other wells dotting the landscape. We recognize that we're not the only frog in a well, but in fact, there are frogs peeking their heads out of all these other wells all over the landscape. All of us coming from our own unique backgrounds, our own upbringing or with our own values. Uh, ultimately though, we have a choice to make. Are we going to retreat back down into our well that's safe, that we know, that we understand, there's stability, there's safety, there's certainty, or are we willing to, to get outside of our well and to go experience more of what the world has to offer? Uh, maybe that might involve exploring other people, other wells around the landscape, or maybe that just means that we're, we're going to explore the world outside of the well. Either way, we learn, we grow, we develop. Now, it's, it's, it can be scary. Uh, at the bottom of a well, we're not going to be hunted. Uh, we're, we we uh, are safe. When, once we get outside of the well, you know, there are predators, other animals that could try to eat us. Um, there's a lot we don't know. And when we don't know, we can make mistakes. So it's challenging, but that's the enriching part of the world. And, and some, this is something I share uh, now you're you're probably all familiar with this already, and so I'm preaching to the choir. But this is these proverbs are not something that uh, most people I interact with here in the United States know about. And so I always teach my students in any class that I teach at the university about these proverbs because I want them to have this kind of a mindset. And I always, when I talk to leaders and executives uh, in organizations, when I do consulting work, I always want to help them understand these principles because I think it's, it's foundational to the life well lived, the ability for us to um, really appreciate and value diversity and foster diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging within our organizations. 
Um, which brings us to this slide, and I don't want to belabor this point either, because this is really just a subset of some of the things I wanted to, to point out in terms of dis interdisciplinarity and collaboration at the um, outset of the presentation today. Um, but there are all these different forms of, of difference, all these different types of um, diversity that we see within the workplace. Obviously, things like gender, physical, mental ability, age, race, but the further we get outside the diversity wheel uh, to those outer rings, these are things that we can't necessarily see and we won't really know until we get to know the person. And so by getting to know each other, by openly communicating with each other, by developing mutual relationships of accountability and trust with each other, and we can develop empathy and compassion for each other as we get to understand each other. And that's where diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging come in. And in my view, ultimately what we're really shooting for is the intersection of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that is in the middle of the Venn diagram, we have belonging. An organization that engages the full potential of every individual where innovation thrives and views, beliefs, and values are fully valued, integrated, and everyone feels like they belong. Uh, that's, that's what we're going for. That's what the future of work requires in an interconnected global world. We have to be able to do that. Um, you, in a previous session, I believe recently, you talked about growth mindset, so I don't want to get much into this one. Um, but we have to be able to have foster a growth mindset, an abundance mindset. Otherwise, we're going to stall out. Some of the most rawly intellectually genius people that I know are some of the stupidest people that I know. Um, they're, they're, they're very intelligent, high IQ. The reason why I say they're some of the stupidest people I know though is because they aren't continually growing because they feel like they know everything that they figured it out. And once you feel like you have figured it out, you're not growing, you stagnate and the world moves on right by you. Um, I'm not the most intelligent person in the world. I, I think I'm a, a smart guy, but I work hard. I work like persistently, resiliently, per uh, continually. I work at uh, developing myself. I work at learning and growing. And I like to talk to people to understand where my gaps are and where my blind spots are. And if we want to, to be able to, to lean into the complexities of the future of work, we just have to adopt the growth mindset. So that's all I'll say about that. Okay, so a deep breath, um, the future of work, interdisciplinarity, collaboration, all these different skills, competencies, and capabilities are going to be necessary for the future of work. And among those, and connecting back to interdisciplinarity, is really this idea of systems thinking. So let's start with just a few definitions. Uh, let's start first with a system. What is a system? There are lots of systems. In fact, we can look all around us and there are systems all over the place, right? It's a set of things working together as parts of an interconnected, interconnecting network, parts of a whole. A system has two or more elements. They interact to make that whole. Systems are everywhere. Um, cells, families, schools, office teams, groups, uh, organizations, of course, are systems. In this diagram here, you can see the uh, 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 hydrology system starting with rainfall, going all the way down to groundwater. And this water system is is literally what helps the planet to live, right? Or one of the components that helps the planet to live. And so in order to better understand 
uh, how we fit into the world around us, we have to understand how we connect with and fit into systems, a whole variety of systems. Again, I am a, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a professor, I'm a consultant, uh, I'm a community member, I'm a churchgoer. I, I'm, I have all these different roles. And each of these roles represent different systems that I'm a part of, different social systems that I'm a part of. But I can also look around and I can see physical systems, I can see environmental systems. There are all these systems. Okay, uh, a couple other just really quick examples. Here we, we have, uh, you know, the body as a system, all these different uh, components. And here specifically, we're talking about breathing, our, our, our ability to breathe and take in oxygen. It requires all of these different components. And if any of these individual components break down, we can't breathe and, and we die, uh, or we have a miserable existence, right? If we can't breathe properly. Uh, another example, the earth as a complex interrelated system. Uh, yeah, not to get into any details here, but you know, starting with the energy from the sun and plants growing and, and, and animals eating those plants. And then we have interconnected economies and social systems embedded with the environmental systems. It's all interconnected. And that's, that's the main point here. It's all interconnected. So systems thinking then taps into that notion that we're all interconnected. Systems thinking is a sensitivity to the circular nation, uh, nature of the world we live in and awareness of the role of structure in creating the conditions we face. So systems thinking is a diagnostic tool uh, as in the medical field, effective treatment follows through thorough diagnosis. We need to do the same thing. Through systems thinking, we can diagnose the problems that we face and it's a disciplined approach to understanding the complexities of those problems. So in general, jumping down to that bottom quote, in general, a systems thinking perspective requires curiosity, clarity, compassion, choice, and courage. This approach includes the willingness to see a situation more fully, to recognize that we are all interrelated, to acknowledge that there are often multiple interventions to a problem, and to champion interventions that may not be popular. Uh, challenging the status quo, challenging quote unquote common sense and ultimately trying to fully understand the at a deeper level what the most challenging issues are that are facing us so what is the business case for practicing systems thinking that's a question i want to ask all of you i certainly have my ideas uh feel free to unmute yourself or or chime in in the comments what why why should we worry about this why is this something that you were invited to to join this presentation today to spend an hour and a half of your time thinking about uh the the interconnectedness of of the workplace and systems thinking i'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? 
Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. All right. Well, again, feel free to chime in. Feel free to interrupt. Um, I think... um, Unfortunately, I can't pull up the chat while I'm sharing my screen. And so uh, I think there are probably some great comments that are going on there. Uh, feel free to, to unmute yourself and to voice any comments or, or anything like that if you would like. But I think generally speaking, everything we've been talking about up to this point illustrates the need for systems thinking. And it illustrates the business case. Now, I think there's clearly a human case for, for systems thinking as well. Um, if I if we're going to uh, effectively have you know if we're going to have meaningful fulfilling relationships with those around us, we have to be able to better understand the people we interact with. Even in my home, I'm married. I have six children. Um, the, my family is my world. They are my pride and joy, and I love them to death. If I want to have meaningful relationships with my children, with my wife, uh, I have to understand how we all connect holistically, uh, all different aspects of our relationships. And that means a variety of roles. That means a variety of types of interactions. That means I have to juggle different things. I, if, if I'm only thinking of myself in one role at home, I'm going to be missing things. And I'm probably not going to make, make great decisions uh, when challenges arise. Uh, the same thing, so, so it's, there's a human case for us just being fulfilled individuals, connecting with those around us, having meaningful relationships, and understanding the challenges that we face. Um, the human case, the environmental case, you know, of understanding the, the, the global system, the environmental system, how we as humans impact the environment, things like climate change, global warming, etc. Uh, the business case is the same. Um, holistic understanding the holistic nature of the challenges we face to get below the surface level so that we can truly uh, address a problem and and resolve it. That doesn't happen by chance. That doesn't happen by accident. And it certainly doesn't happen by playing whack-a-mole with the manifesting symptoms of problems. So what happens most of the time in organizations is you have something, you know, some problem emerges. Employee turnover is too high, for example. Okay, that's that's a problem. We need to address that. How do we solve uh, employee turnover? Because that's costing the, the organization a lot of money in terms of, of finding new people, onboarding them, training them, helping them you know, get up to speed, interacting with customers. There's going to be customer retention issues uh, if if you have high turnover with your employees, for example. So th- this is a system. Th- this is a symptom, though. Uh, employee turnover isn't the core problem. It's a symptom of a much deeper problem. So you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why do we have high levels of employee turnover? And what can we do about it? And so you ask yourself why, and then you say, well, okay, maybe um, we have high turnover because we're not um, showing our people that we value them enough. Okay, so why? Why why aren't we, what's the breakdown? Why, what's the problem there? 
Uh, how could we show our people that we value them more? But then asking yourself again the why question over and over and over again to dig deeper and deeper and deeper till you get to the root causes of the problems that you're facing. And that's ultimately how you're going to get to um, those core issues. And if you don't, you're just going to constantly be playing whack-a-mole. Okay, so we could go on and on, but I, I think you, you all probably understand that. Um, I just briefly wanted to talk about six characteristics of systems thinking. Uh, there, there's some really great resources, and I know they're sharing in the module with you um, some good reading, some good videos, some other great resources to supplement what we're doing together today. Um, just briefly, I wanted to talk about these ideas of interconnectedness, synthesis, emergence, feedback loops, causality, and systems mapping. And then we're going to zoom in more specifically on systems mapping. Um, specifically, and those are some of the tools uh, that we're going to explore together uh, today. We've already talked a lot about interconnectedness. Everything is interconnected, and if we think we're in a if we are comfortable in our silo, and we think that our our world can be dealt with in our own little sphere, uh, we're fooling ourselves because everything that we do is going to have implications for others, and everything other people do is going to have implications for us. Uh, and so if we want to be relevant in the world uh, and in our organizations and in the future of work, we have to recognize the interconnectedness and we have to break down the silos, break down the barriers and, and have a greater uh, ability to ultimately connect with those around us. And that that then leads into the synthesis that we're all striving for. Uh, being able to bring the complexity in an understandable way uh, that we can acknowledge the challenges uh, and ultimately through that we can get to emergence and and uh, ultimately uh, see see what the outcomes can be for our organization when when I think of systems thinking what really matters here is feedback loops um, we could talk all day about how to put into place effective mechanisms for feedback systems and feedback loops. Because what I see as a consultant and as a researcher and a professor, what I see consistently over and over and over again is that most organizations talk about wanting feedback, but they don't have systems, processes, mechanisms in place. They don't have the, the feedback loops actually established. And so what ends up happening is you know the CEO, the C-suite executive team, they make some strategic decisions. They say this is the path we're on. Then they, they send their information down to you know mid managers who then disseminate it down further down the hierarchy of the organization. And feedback and it's kind of a one directional approach of conveying information. And there really isn't much feedback that can really happen. Sometimes an employee who's really courageous can speak up, speak out, um, be willing uh, to challenge the status quo, challenge even the directions of the leaders above them. Um, but that's that's a really tough thing to ask of an individual person, particularly if they're way down the hierarchy. Uh, and if that's the only way that you're going to get meaningful feedback as an organization is when you have whistleblowers or people who are courageous enough to stand up, speak up, uh, and, and speak out about problems they face, uh, 
uh, inequities, uh, other, other types of, of core issues in the organization, or even just processes and talking about how can we improve these processes, um, you're going to have a huge problem. And essentially, you're, you're not going to have the feedback if that's what you're relying on. Uh, I've been there before. It's a, it's a tough place to be, to find yourself in a situation where there's no good mechanisms for, for, for upper um, echelons of leadership in the C-suite to really understand what's happening at the ground level where the rubber meets the road and where we're interfacing with customers. And, and so they send down uh, policies, practices, procedures that need to be in place, and then there's no good way for them to get the feedback um, I've been in that situation where because of the inequities, because of what I felt were the clear moral and ethical dilemmas um, put in place due to the decisions of upper leadership, that I felt like I had no choice but to speak up and to speak out. But inevitably, when I do that, I take a risk, right? I, I know when I do that, that that might cost me my job or it might, even if I keep my job, it might diminish me in the eyes of leadership and, and, and diminish my opportunity for promotion in the future uh, and so forth. And so we need to take away those barriers. We need to create a psychologically safe environment with lots of feedback loops and mechanisms for people to share their input. Uh, and ultimately that will allow organizations to thrive. So that's a, a fundamental feature of good systems thinking is there's lots of feedback loops that we can understand how these interconnected areas um, uh, we can iterate uh, with our process of trying to make things better. Right. Anytime you establish feedback loops, um, they have to be managed, right? And it does take uh, work, like someone has to be involved in monitoring those feedback systems. Now there are technologies that can help enhance, you know, our ability to do that effectively and to ensure things like anonymity. So if I want to whistleblow, you know, and I, I, I can do that with an assurance that it's anonymous and I'm not, you know, I, I'm not going to be um, hurt by speaking up about that. Those types of things, there are softwares out there that we, that can be utilized, that can aggregate those types of things and to send them off to the right people. Um, definitely, we want to utilize those whenever possible. Um, but I think it's it's just like, in my opinion, the lack of, uh, of feedback loops uh, even understanding it's going to take time, effort, work, some resources to be able to facilitate them. If we don't have them, um, then what are we really doing as an organization? That's in my mind, that's a dysfunctional organization when there aren't those feedback loops. Um, it, it's, it's not a psychologically safe or healthy organization when there's a lack of feedback loops. And that doesn't, I want to clarify too, that doesn't mean that you know, people, the CEO, the C-suite executives, middle management, um, the lack of feedback loops doesn't mean they're bad people. And it doesn't mean that they have it out for everybody. Um, it doesn't mean that they're trying to stick it to the man or that they're trying to um, hurt people or exploit people. But the problem is when feedback loops aren't there, leaders don't know what they don't know. And they don't, they don't see their blind spots without the feedback loops. And, and so if I'm a leader, I'm an executive in an organization, I want feedback loops. I want as many meaningful feedback loops as possible to make sure that I'm constantly having people challenge my thinking, um, shine a light on my blind spots, hold up a mirror in front of me, 
uh, that might be a little bit uncomfortable. But if I'm not an ego-driven leader, I actually have you know I, a desire to help those around me and to develop my people and to have the organization be successful, and that's my number one goal. Then, then yeah, bring on the feedback, even if it's hard, even if it's difficult and uncomfortable. Okay. Now I recognize you know that might sound idealistic. And perhaps, you know, that's, that's not what we experience with a lot of leaders in a lot of organizations, but I think it's, I think, uh, it's something we can work towards. And I think each of you in this meeting, you can think about that and how does that apply to your experience? Um, and, and how can you become that type of a leader in, in your career? Uh, the second part of your question. So what happens when you, when you do have the courage, you speak up, you speak out, you challenge the status quo, um, and nothing happens. That's that's the hard thing. I mean, that's always a danger. Um, and I think that can happen whether there's feedback loops or not. The difference is if there's feedback loops in place and people feel empowered to speak up and to speak out and they don't feel like they're going to be in danger or harmed by it, you're going to get more people speaking up. You're going to have more feedback. You're going to have better understanding of the core issues. And I think that leads to um, leadership and ex the executive teams taking those types of things more seriously. And that does tend to lead to more action than when it's one solitary person. So if I'm the person, you know, nobody's speaking up, everyone's uncomfortable. Everyone thinks this is a problem, but nobody's saying anything because they're worried about getting fired. They're worried about whatever. Um, and then I'm the only person that stands up and says something. It's, it's, it's really easy for leadership to dismiss me, it's really easy for them to fire me, get rid of me, whatever, silence me, um, and it's it's just more of an argument I think for for having more feedback loops. Now, if if I ever as that individual who decides to speak up, I have to recognize that yeah, they may not listen to me. They they may take what I say and say that guy's crazy, or they may think they may realize yeah, he's got something, but we don't want to change. Um, ultimately. If I'm speaking up in that kind of an unpsychologically safe environment without the mechanisms um, and feedback loops, I need to recognize that, yeah, I might have to go look for another job. I might need to leave. Uh, I might choose to leave because I don't want to work in that organization anymore. Those are all things that I think I would have to decide for myself that I'm willing to do. Um, and, and it's a bit of an ethical dilemma. Like, to, to what extent do I decide to fight the good fight and try to drive change from inside the organization, even when I feel like I don't have much of a voice and the, and leadership may be trying to silence dissenters or do I, at, at what point do I decide, you know what, I'm going to move on. I'm going to go somewhere else where I can make more of a difference, um, in, in, when I'm not in, in an unhealthy, uh, environment. Does that make sense? So I'm not sure there's an easy answer to your question. It's, it's a reality. The reality is sometimes people are going to speak up and nothing's going to change. But when we build in the feedback loops, I think it increases the likelihood that change will occur because just the existence of the feedback loops, uh, demonstrates at least some level of willingness from organizational leadership that they're willing that they, they want it. They want the feedback. They want the input. And if they want it, that usually means that they're willing to make some changes according to the feedback they get. I, I'm going to move into systems mapping. So one of the th so here um, is just an example of a systems map, and this looks pretty complicated. And the reality is, it is complicated. Um, so here, you know, uh, the the issue is, you know, we got 
a financial system and an economy and we're trying to understand the interconnectedness of like the economy. That's a super complex thing, right? And so if we're trying to understand um, the global economy, for example, there's going to be individual level types of interactions that are happening down in the blue uh, bubble. There's going to be societal level things. There's environmental stuff in the green bubble. Then you have the kind of these overarching kind of umbrella systems in the financial system and the economy. And then each of these arrows represents directionality, causality, and uh, potential feedback loops on on the relationships between each of these things. So my point in showing you this example is not to dissect this particular systems map. Um, my point is to just show you that, yes, it can be really complicated if you start to put together a systems map, particularly the more complex the problem, the more complicated the systems map will be. But once you start to dig in to trying to understand and outline all of the different core components of what's actually happening, then essentially what you're doing is you're, again, you're getting below the surface. You're getting past those surface level symptoms and you're starting to understand the inner relatedness of everything that's involved, uh, and ultimately you can you can start to um, to deal with it. So here, you know, dealing with the the, the economic system around the pandemic and uh, mask wearing and COVID deaths and all that kind of stuff, right? It's a it's a really complicated thing. Um, in a minute, we're going to finish off, and I'm going to give you a series of tools and kind of talk you through them for how you can utilize them. But first, I want to take a moment and talk about overcoming the roadblocks and resistance to change um, when trying to adopt a systems approach. Um, I think some of this comes back to the, the previous question and even what we were talking about um, when you don't have those feedback loops. The, the bottom line is most people don't like change. Uh, most people like consistency. They like the sense of stability. Um, they even like, you know, the the pretense of certainty. Now, I don't think there's much of anything in this world that's certain, but people certainly like to pretend like things are certain and predictable and safe um, and comfortable, right? And I think that's human nature. And so anytime we're trying to disrupt a system, we're going to disrupt the status quo, it's going to make people uncomfortable and particularly those people who benefit the most from the existing system. So, you know, just as like a, a social system that is problematic in the US, for example, is we have systemic racism issues in the US. Um, and any of you who may have followed the news over the past year, you've heard about the, the, the race riots and the George Floyd incident and all these things related to it like we have big systemic racism issues in the u.s um that are far beyond anything that's just cultural anything that's just attitudes uh of of the average person but it's built in it's baked into our our economic system our political system and a whole variety of things and so and there are people that benefit from those systems so for example now i i hope i'm not racist but I am a white guy, right? I am I'm a middle-aged, straight, white man. Um, I benefit from a system that has lifted up white people in the U.S. and disadvantaged people of color in the U.S., okay? So if you start to disrupt that system to try to create more equity and inclusion and, and embrace diversity, there are going to be some people who 
you know, are benefiting from the, the current system who are going to push back because they want to maintain their status. They want to maintain their position in the hierarchy of the system. Uh, and, and that's the same in any system. That's the same in any organization. So anytime you're disrupting, anytime you're challenging, there will be people, um, well, two things. One, just regular human nature. Most people don't really like change. And so you're going to have resistance for that reason. But the second point is anyone who has benefited from the current dysfunctional system, they, they're they going to push back and they're going to resist because they want to maintain their power, their status, uh, etc. So how do we go about overcoming those roadblocks? How do we overcome resistance? Uh, and feel free, if anyone has thoughts, comments, I would love for you to chime in. Uh, I could certainly give you my my thinking, but uh, I, I welcome any of your comments as well. And especially when you have, say, a team that is has a super deep level of expertise, right? Um, and now you're trying to convince them that they need to work collaboratively with other people outside of their team. Um, I'm actually I'm working on a project right now that's that's like that um, here locally. Um, that we we have. We have a range of different physical scientists um, in their specific physical science fields. And then we have some social scientists, uh, some business people. We have a range of people in all these different disciplines. And there's definitely a tendency that people have to lean into their own training, their own expertise, and to, um, to elevate their own um, their own background, their own training over the training of other people to think that theirs is more valid, theirs is more important. And I think what you're describing happens in organizations all the time that, you know, their area of expertise is super vital. It's super important. They have that depth that nobody else has. And so why should they have to dilute their, um, their expertise to, you know, quote unquote, appease, um, other people who don't understand what they're doing anyways. Right. Um, I think that's a really common problem. And so ultimately what we have to try to do in, in breaking down those silos, breaking down those barriers is we, there's, there's no easy answer to that question. Really. We, we have to do the hard work over time of shifting the culture within the organization. Uh, and sometimes that means even shifting the personnel, um, over time, um, whether it's through natural attrition or just making uh, personnel changes that are necessitated by the, you know, the lack of people's willingness to change over time. Um, you need to shift the culture that people recognize in our organization, we work together, we collaborate, we have our areas of expertise, but if we're stuck in our silos, we are never going to be able to solve the big problems. You make the business case again and again and again. Um, and if they're still resistant, um, you know, have those one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, it's one thing to be in a training like this with, I don't know how many people are on the call right now. Maybe we're, you know, hundred, hundred plus, 150, whatever. Um, it's one, one thing to have a big group of people on a training like this. It's something very different to, to do the hard work of going out and having conversations with individuals, um, who might be kind of the hot spots of resistance. So if I know, if I'm, if I'm, you know, a leader in an organization and I know that we need to shift in this direction, we need to have more of a systems approach. We need to have more collaboration. Um, and I know there are pockets of resistance and I know there are people who are even leading those pockets of resistance. 
I need, there, there's no substitute for me doing the hard work of reaching out, having those conversations, in some cases being very frank and direct with them about what they need to do and how they need to get on board with what we're trying to do in the organization, or this won't be a place for them in the future. You know, having those types of difficult conversations is going to be really important. And over time, it, it can work as long as you are consistent. Um, most meaningful culture change within organizations takes, it, it's not something that happens after a meeting. It's not something that happens after one, two, three, six months, or even a year. Usually it has to be persistent effort towards communication, having those hard conversations and building in accountability mechanisms into the organization over the course of several years in order to have, you know, big wide scale types of changes adopted and, 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 um, really embraced, uh, with, with real buy-in and commitment from people throughout the organization. And so just recognizing that this isn't going to be easy. Like if we want to shift the mindset, we want people to adopt a new way of approaching and breaking out of their silos. And, and even if it makes them uncomfortable, or even if they find it annoying, even if they feel like it's beneath them to have to dump quote unquote, dumb down their, um, their expertise to help you know, other people understand what they're doing. Um, e even if, if all that's the case, you have to do, you have to work towards it and you have to be consistent with it. Otherwise, um, you know, you're not going to get there and there, there's just no magic bullet to it. Uh, I wish there was, but there, but there's just not, uh, other thoughts, comments around this, this resistance issue, grassroots change can be very meaningful and impactful within organizations, especially if you have individuals who are trusted, respected, um, by other people. Uh, and, and you don't, you don't have to be a leader. You don't have to be an executive to, to you know, and some, some people are leaders without any formal title or role, but they just, people know them. They know that, um, they're trust, trusted people. They know that, um, you know, and they just look, they just kind of naturally look to them. And when you have people like that, they can start to drive grassroots change, um, that can then influence, uh, upper levels of leadership in the organization that can be meaningful, but certainly that's harder. And, and if you don't have a psychologically safe environment where people feel like they can kind of agitate from the grassroots level, then a lot of that gets squashed and those people get pushed out. So, I mean, generally speaking, yes, I would say whenever possible, have, have consistent, committed, unified voice from the top down about what kind of change we want to move towards. Um, and that will probably give you the greatest likelihood of implementing and sustaining that change over time. Um, but hopefully you can, you can get champions at all levels of the organization who can fight the good fight and help, you know, do the hard work of convincing people and, and, and moving people in the right direction. A couple questions that I think you should each reflect on. Um, think about your own work. Think about your own current job. Think about your organization. What complex organizational challenges are you facing today? Um, and you know, think about those challenges. If you were able to solve those challenges, what would that do for you? What would that do for your team? What would that do for your quality of life, for your quality of work life? Uh, how would that impact your productivity? How would that impact the innovation of your team, your organization? Okay. Uh, we all face those types of challenges. Um, so maybe choose one and just think about it. How can a systems thinking approach aid in facing those challenges, trying to dig below the surface and understand the root causes. 
also, um, you know, think about taking that challenge or that, that organizational challenge that you're thinking about in the first question, you know, if you were to use a systems mapping approach to map out your organization and the flow of information, how could that help you to dissect and resolve a complex issue in your organization? Who are the key stakeholders? Who are the key players? Where are the gaps? Uh, where are the feedback loops lacking that need to be there that aren't there, uh, et cetera? Uh, I think when we start to think through these questions for particular very specific types of issues that we're facing, um, it can start us down the path of, of more effective resolution. Uh, of course, recognizing it's not going to be easy, um, but we can start that process. So in the last little bit, I want to at least walk you through and make you familiar with a few of these resources. Uh, and I would invite you in the coming days and weeks to even really, you know, take the time and work through some of these um, tools, um, utilize them and see how they might be able to help you address some of the complex problems your organization is facing. So the main question, how can a systems thinking approach help your organization? The first tool, it's a very simple tool, but research the iceberg of your problem. Now I've already talked about kind of that surface level. We all, I think you all have heard the iceberg uh, analogy or metaphor before, but you only see like that top 10 or 20% of the iceberg, 80 to 90% of the iceberg is below the surface. And so what often happens in organizations is we see some problem, it's some event, some, something occurs and we say, that's a big problem. We need to solve it. And so then we try to solve that surface level event. Um, without recognizing that there's this whole depth, um, 80, 90% of the problem is actually below the surface that we have no understanding of at the, at the current moment. And so as, as we take this iceberg approach to any problem, you know, from the, the reflection slide that I just had up, think about that problem and, and start to map out what the iceberg of that problem looks like. What are the manifesting events? The next level underneath that is what are the patterns that lead to those events below those patterns, then there's systemic structures in place. Um, the, the policies, practices, procedures of the organization that ultimately lead to patterns of behavior and those patterns of behavior are then what result in, you know, some problem to emerge or an event to happen. Right. Um, and where do those systems, those, uh, system structures come from those system structures emerge over time due to the mental models that exist amongst the people in the organization, um, amongst the team, amongst the executive leadership. So, uh, a, men a mental model, for example, might be, uh, various ideologies, um, economic, political, social, religious ideologies that drive the way people view the world. Um, so then they put in policy practices and procedures, um, that are in alignment with their, their worldview. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I think getting outside of, of, the, um, our well as a frog, you know, getting outside of that well is really important because it expands our mental models and allows us to see things more holistically. Um, so I would recommend iceberg um, approach to, to trying to understand your problem in greater depth. Uh, another thing that you can do is a root cause analysis. So you have a problem, right? That's great. 
What are the consequences of that problem? Those, those things are pretty easy to start to see because we have a manifesting problem and we can start to think about it. And we can see how it influences other things. We can start to map, we can brainstorm and map out what are the consequences of those problems. The harder part then becomes what are the root causes and contributing factors of that problem? So thinking about the tree, the problem manifesting is like the trunk, the consequences of the branches. What we really want to understand though, the, the problem and the consequences are helpful for context, but what we really want to do is start to get into the roots uh, of what's really um, going on. And so having a brainstorming session with your team to think about one particular issue and what those root causes are um, can be a really helpful activity uh, to have that kind of a dialogue and narrative. Another thing that is really helpful is to go through uh, identifying stakeholders and when possible, even interviewing those stakeholders. So we have the presenting problem. And then we have all these different types of stakeholders. So I just, you don't have to use what I have here. I put like communities of focus and uh, sociocultural stakeholders, business and technological stakeholders, environmental stakeholders, arts and media, education and health. Um, you may decide there are whole different ranges of stakeholders um, and that's fine. The, the point is, as you start to map out who the key stakeholders are in relationship to that problem and their proximity to each other, uh, then that starts to help you understand and see um, where those connection points are and, and perhaps even where those feedback loops need to be added uh, for better inter uh, uh, interventions. The next thing you want to do then is to try to understand what existing interventions are already out there. Um, we have lots of different ways to go about doing this. So here you can see if I'm dealing with social problems, social change, I'm going to be looking at what I call the pathways of social impact, direct service, community engaged learning and research, social entrepreneurship, philanthropy, community engaged activism of policy and governance. But whatever you know the framing is within your organization, if you have existing interventions that are trying to solve a problem, you want to understand those first. Um, understand what people have tried in the recent past, understand what they're currently trying to do, and then that will help you to understand better the gaps that might be in place uh, and, and see where new interventions might make sense. Uh, what often happens, unfortunately, is when we start using a systems thinking approach, people often very quickly jump to solutions and they say, oh, well, here's the problem. Here's what we need to do to solve it. They don't take the time to understand all the stakeholders. They don't take the time to understand all the existing or previously um, uh, the, the types of interventions that were tried. And because of that, they end up um, revisiting the same types of things and oftentimes uh, they with with the same types of, of outcomes and then finally do a problem analysis and identify gaps and levers of change so that problem overview um, what are the gaps or excuse me what's the interventions overview the existing interventions and what you want to try to do to, to meet the gaps in the interventions um, you'll you'll uh, explore the gaps more specifically, and then you'll identify what are the, if we want change to occur and we want to break down resistance to change, what are the specific levers of change that are going to help us drive the outcomes that we want to see in our organization? It won't happen magically. Um, we have to get the right players involved. We have to get the right stakeholders bought in. We have to, um, in some cases, disrupt current systems. In other cases, we need to support other existing systems. So we, those are the types of things that we need to outline. Each of these tools 
there's there's no rocket science here i i think you'll see right as as i just really briefly walked you through those um all of those are very straightforward types of tools but when you when you utilize them and have meaningful dialogue and interactions with your teams and and have discussion around these and brainstorm around these and start to put together um uh, your ideas around each of these areas, it will really help you uh, to to more clearly articulate in your mind and amongst your team what needs to happen from a systematic interdisciplinary approach to help solve the biggest challenges uh, that your organization is facing. What we don't want to have happen is decision paralysis within an organization. And some leaders are inclined that way anyways uh, like some leaders are really good at being you know taking in inputs trying to do their research understand a problem as best they can in a timely way and then just make a decision move forward um and other leaders aren't so good at that and then if you if, if you're a leader that's not very good at that and then you layer on top of that systems thinking um it potentially can be a problem and so i definitely am an advocate for iterating and we don't have like we can build the plane while we're flying it. I don't have to be perfect. Uh, I, I I can't let perfection uh, be the enemy of progress. And so, uh, you know, do the best I can with the information I have now. And then over time, I can clarify my position. I can continue to understand the interconnectedness and the system at play. And that might mean that I change my mind. That might mean that you know, we go one direction and then six months later, uh, because of new inputs or because uh, I have a better understanding of the holistic system at that point in time, that, I, that you know, we need to have a new strategy or we need to take a slightly different approach. That's totally fine. I think that's what a growth mindset is all about. And so I definitely think we, we don't want to um, get stuck in the mud and not make decisions because we constantly feel like it's so complex we just need to do more and more research and, and uh, always be looking for an answer. The reality is with the most complex problems, there's almost never a, like the answer, right? There, there's only our ability to, to be thoughtful and thorough and then learn and grow and iterate. You know, I often tell people, you know, we want to fall forward. We want to fail fast. If we're going to mess up, let's learn from it and and let's move forward quickly uh, and and not not ruminate over the failures and and i think that would apply here too if we're trying to adopt more of a systems thinking approach on the other hand if i'm a leader you know that is you know a ready uh aim shoot kind of a leader where i i i, I make decisions too fast without talking to enough people without um, getting good input from my trusted advisors and trying to 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 generate buy-in amongst my people you know, then this really can be one of those tools that can help them to be more systematic, more um, deliberate in their approach to communication and, and thinking thoroughly through the challenges that they're facing. I, I don't know if that helps, but that's my perspective on it. I, I think that's a great question. Anyone who thinks they know what they're doing, like, and thinks they have a sense of certainty about how to move forward against these most, these really complex issues, they're it, they're delusional. Like we we don't know what we're doing. We're doing the best we can in darkness. Uh, we we don't know what the future holds for sure. We can see trends, right? But we don't know for sure. And so the best we can do is take a step forward and learn as we go. 
we are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free, interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.